It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. In October of 1845, a heavy fog descended over Ireland, coloring its rolling green hills black. It came at the worst time of the year, the day before the potato harvest. Across the Irish farmlands, a rumor spread. Fairy tribes were battling each other, turning the sky dark with their invisible war. According to folklore, fairies would often fight over Ireland's resources, trying to prevent each other from taking more than their fair share. Sometimes these feuds turned ugly, with one fairy clan cursing a harvest to prevent another tribe from enjoying its spoils. But as the Irish gazed up at the sky, they had no idea what the fairies were fighting over. Meanwhile, a curse was forming just below their feet. When the farmers awoke the next morning, the fog had lifted, but it had left a horrible smell in its wake. Perplexed by the stench, farm laborers hurried to pull up their crops, but instead of brown, hardy potatoes, they unearthed rotting spuds, dripping with black slime. Little did they know, this was just the beginning of a four-year famine. Welcome to Natural Disasters, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Kate. And I'm Tim. Every Thursday, we'll explore the moments in history when the natural world turned deadly. You can find all episodes of Natural Disasters and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Natural Disasters for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Natural Disasters in the search bar. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. This is our first of two episodes on the Irish potato famine, also known in Ireland as the Great Famine. In 1845, an airborne fungus destroyed Ireland's potato crops, leaving the country without its main food source. Over the next four years, nearly one million people would die from famine-related causes. This week, we'll explore the source of the Irish potato famine and how what started out as an ecological blight morphed into a bureaucratic nightmare brought on by the reigning British government. We'll also follow the early relief efforts and the English trade policy that exacerbated an already dire situation. Next week, we'll cover the potato famine's deadly toll as it continued to overtake the Irish farmlands. We'll explore why the socio-ecological disaster lasted for so long and how it finally came to a close after four unrelenting years. Ireland has always been a damp place. Situated by the Atlantic Ocean, it wears a temperate maritime climate for most of the year. Low clouds hang in the air, saturated with rain that frequently peppers the land and sometimes pummels it. 
The average annual rainfall in Ireland is around 40 inches, and for the most part, its summers are mild, while the winters are cold and windy. This climate is perfectly suited for growing potatoes, which thrive in mild and rainy conditions and deep, fertile soil. But Ireland's summer in 1845 was erratic and especially wet, making it almost perfect weather conditions for water mold to spread. Potato blight is caused by a water mold, officially known as Phytophthora infestans, which thrives in cold and moist environments. Once the disease takes control, it destroys all elements of an infected potato plant, from the roots to the leaves. Most notably, it infects the tuber, the edible part of a potato. In addition to being everyone's favorite part of a potato, tubers are the plant's life source. They're where the starches and sugars are stored, and in order for a potato plant to continue its growth, the tubers must remain healthy. If the tuber rots, then the whole plant rots with it, turning the bountiful food source into a tainted one. For the Irish, a potato blight meant that their staple food crop could be totally obliterated. But to understand the gravity of this situation, one would have to know how potatoes came to hold such a monopoly over the Irish diet. The potato originated in the high plateaus of the Andes Mountains in South America. In the 1500s, Spanish colonists noted its abundance in South and Central America and collected samples of its seeds. But when they first shipped the potato to Europe, it was met with a lot of resistance. Some people initially refused to eat it on religious grounds, believing that it was a sin to eat a crop that hadn't been mentioned in the Bible. Others refused because they feared it would give them a disease like leprosy or rickets. Nonetheless, European plant specialists were gradually able to convince people that the crop was safe to eat. And by the early 17th century, Europeans were beginning to grasp the viability of the potato plant. It was easy to grow and calorie-dense, making it a strong candidate to feed the masses. And while most European countries already had an established harvest routine that provided more than enough food for their growing populations, Ireland was primed for a hearty new crop like the potato. From the 1500s to the 1700s, Ireland was in a state of almost constant upheaval. The Irish were perpetually defending their lands from their English neighbors, leaving the country war-torn and starving for years on end. Then, in 1691, Protestant England ultimately folded Catholic Ireland into its kingdom. The English government then instituted a list of strict limitations on the Irish people, known as the Penal Laws. Under the Penal Laws, Irish Catholics were barred from holding any kind of power, political or otherwise. They also could not purchase or inherit land, leaving it all to English landlords. Thus, in Ireland, religion indicated one's class and ultimately their success. While the small, wealthy minority were Protestant by birth or had converted to keep their land, the majority of Irish people were Catholic and poor. When the potato was introduced at the turn of the 17th century, poor Irish Catholics were in need of an easy-to-seed food source. What's more, the English landlords believed the potato crop would be a cheap and efficient way to feed their Irish tenants. 
The landowning classes were determined to push the potato onto the working class because of its economic viability. But it wasn't immediately popular among the Irish population for the same reasons that other Europeans had initially resisted it, believing the potato to be either heretical or dangerous. However, it soon became clear that the potato could produce more food per acre than any other crop. It started off in the gardens of wealthy noblemen who had visited the New World before gradually spreading across Ireland. Farmers from all over the island embraced the root vegetable after word of its viability circulated. What was at first a few Irish potato farmers soon multiplied. By the mid-1700s, it was Ireland's main staple crop and an extremely reliable food source. Thanks to the potato, there was more food to go around than ever before, and more food meant more people. While Ireland's population had once been 3 million in the 1500s, by the 1800s it had increased to around 8 million, making Ireland the most densely populated country in Europe. Ireland had more than a booming population to contribute to its reliance on the potato plant. In 1800, following several failed Irish rebellions, England merged Ireland into a new United Kingdom. This was done via the Acts of the Union, an agreement between both England's and Ireland's parliaments. Under these acts, both parliaments became one, effectively ensuring that any and all of Ireland's decisions would be made under England's thumb. Nonetheless, by this point, Irish Catholics made up nearly 80% of Ireland's total population. And while the Acts of the Union sent a strong message about the superiority of Protestant England, they still had reason to fear further revolts. Thus, in an effort to quell unrest among the Catholic majority, the penal laws were superseded by the Catholic Emancipation Act in 1829. This law gave Irish Catholics more political power than they had experienced in over a hundred years. Yet, despite this change, Irish land remained with its British owners and their descendants. And so, Irish peasants remained powerless. They were circumstantially bound to poverty, and they lived to serve their English landlords because this was tantamount to survival. By the mid-1800s, the average Irish family was harvesting at least four tons of potatoes each year, and the average Irish person was eating nine pounds of potatoes a day. This one root vegetable was the cornerstone of the Irish breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Potatoes were served mashed or cooked into cakes, soup, and bread. But more often than not, they were boiled, peeled with a thumbnail, and eaten by hand. Potatoes were more than just a staple crop. They were the staple crop. But this singular dependency would soon prove catastrophic. From the beginning, some Irish farmers worried about how heavily the population relied on the potato. They were wary of the consequences if even one year of potato crops were to fail. For millions of Irish people, especially the lower agrarian classes, other food products were too expensive. Potatoes, on the other hand, were cheap, versatile, and filling, making it the perfect option for people who couldn't afford anything else. Farmers worried what effect a failed crop could have on Ireland's population. In the past, potato crops had failed either due to too little rainfall or too much. 
However, these previous incidents usually remained regional. If one farm failed, there were often nearby farms that had flourished. And while some families would be left more hungry than usual, they were still able to benefit from healthy crops elsewhere. But thus far, every potato harvest had gone routinely well. Farmers would harvest the crop twice each year, once in late August and again in October. The August harvest was called the early crop and consisted of so-called new potatoes for eating. The second harvest in October was called the general crop and consisted of old potatoes, which had been allowed to reach full size. These were unearthed and stored for food and to use as seed potatoes in the spring. The so-called meal months began in August after the early crop was harvested and ran until May. During this time, the stored potatoes were rationed to last through the winter and spring. By the time next May rolled around, potatoes were once again in short supply, initiating the summer months, or hungry months, when food was scarce. Meanwhile, throughout the summer, the potatoes were busily growing underground. As soon as the seed tubers were sown in spring, each eye had the potential to sprout making one tuber the seed of several new plants. But this network of life also meant that disease could spread more easily. If one part of the plant was infected and died, all of the other interconnected plants would die as well. As the second harvest season of 1845 drew near, the Irish people were expecting to reap their last bountiful crop of the year. But their hopes were about to be cruelly dashed. Coming up, the first waves of famine hit Ireland. Now back to the story. In the mid-1800s, Ireland was a poor country, consisting mainly of Catholic peasants whose livelihood depended on growing crops for their English landlords. Because of this pervasive poverty, the vast majority of the population relied on one type of crop, the potato. But this singular diet was about to cause a massive tragedy due to the spread of potato blight. In 1843, the United States recorded the first instance of potato blight. Bad spores in Philadelphia and New York were picked up by high winds and spread to farms as far away as Canada. Then, in 1845, Belgian traders unknowingly carried the blight across the Atlantic Ocean in a shipment of seed potatoes. The black rot slowly spread from spore to spore as the ship neared the European coast. By the time it reached land, the potatoes were laden with disease and ripe for planting. While the exact method of how the fungus sprouted north into Ireland isn't fully confirmed, there are several hypotheses. The fungus could have found its way to Ireland by way of high winds from the European mainland or through shipments of guano fertilizer from South America. Some historians suggest that Irish farmers used the infected fertilizer on their potato fields, thus paving the way for the potato blight to spread across the island. And by the summer of 1845, there were reports of blackening crops in Europe and remote areas of Ireland's countryside. The news of crops rotting far away wasn't immediately alarming. Farmers were used to the threat of disease. They operated under the assumption that crop failure was possible, but usually contained to one or two farms, not hundreds or thousands. 
But because Ireland was so densely populated and an island separated from the European continent, the disease would be much more locally destructive in its being so contained. In fact, the island of Ireland was a sitting duck, all due to their disproportionate dependence on a single variety of potato, the Irish lumper. Generally speaking, the lack of genetic variability in the sown land creates a vulnerable plant. This makes it easy for a microorganism, like the Phytophthora infestans, or potato blight, to infiltrate and completely decimate large swaths of crops. With its heavy dependence on the Irish lumper, Ireland was primed for widespread contamination. And even the news from Europe wasn't enough to unsettle them. Because the crops in mainland Europe were more varied, they didn't experience too widespread of contamination. Ireland, on the other hand, was primed for it. The fall of 1845 seemed like any other to most of Ireland's farming communities. Farmers had already reaped batches of new potatoes in August, which were ripe and hardy. Some people even took the precaution of safeguarding these potatoes from fairies by sprinkling them with Catholic holy water and surrounding the storage areas with religious metals. They believed this would protect the crop from evil fairies, especially the fair Leah. In Irish folklore, the fair Leah, or Big Grey Man, was a large fairy who tromped around Ireland's coastal regions, misty highlands, and muddy hollows. He was always surrounded by fog and a musty smell and had the ability to inflict death and disease with a single touch. But as the Irish farmers awaited the second harvest in October, no one had any special cause for alarm. They expected this later batch would yield the same healthy results as in August. Meanwhile, beneath the soil, something dark and damp had taken hold of the Irish potato crop. Potato blight, a fungus-like water mold, was spreading stealthily from plant to plant. In October, the day before the second harvest, a heavy fog rolled in. And while cloudy weather was common in Ireland, this particular fog seemed especially sinister. Many elderly people stressed how they had never seen the sky look the way it did on that day. The fog itself seemed especially heavy and thick, like a heavy black blanket over the Irish heavens. Superstitious rumors circulated. People wondered if perhaps the fairy clans were at war with one another, cursing the sky in their anger, or if the fair Leah was passing by. Mr. Foley, a farmer from County Wicklow in Ireland, would later say, the people went to bed in fear and dread that some great calamity was about to befall them. But they could never have predicted what was about to happen the next day. The next morning, the fog had lifted, but a sinister stench filled the air instead. It was an unforgettable odor, putrid and almost sweet. It was coming from the ground. Farmers kneeled down in their potato beds and dug up the spuds. They dusted off the dirt, trying to clean off the potato. But there was no clean part to be found. Each and every last potato pulled from the ground was covered in a black mold. And it wasn't just the potatoes in the ground that had been affected. The disease had even spread to some storage areas. Johnny Ahern, a farmer from County Limerick, later remembered... 
My father had warned me, but I didn't pay him any heed. I piled the potatoes in the house and didn't bother to put any protections around them. The next morning, I looked at the potatoes, and every one of them was black and not fit for eating. The fair Leah had touched them, and he hadn't missed a single potato. Others took a more religious spin on the blight, calling it a visitation of providence. They believed that the Irish people had been too wasteful with the surplus potatoes from last year's healthy crops. Now they were being punished for their ungrateful squandering. Ireland's high winds and rain only made matters worse, dispersing the spores across the country at a rate of 50 miles a day. As more and more potatoes were unearthed, the weather continued to spread the fungus from farm to farm across Ireland. By the fall of 1845, the average Irish potato farm appeared sunken. The fields looked like graveyards that had been excavated, leaving deep cavities in the ground. Even the potatoes stored from August had been reduced to muck, thanks to the infected spores that blew into the storage spaces. Huddled in their mud cabins with thatched roofs, the poor Irish families faced the reality of a useless crop. With no potatoes to sell or eat, how were they meant to make rent? And without their main food source, how could they even survive the winter? The O'Donovan Rossas of County Cork, Ireland, were initially considered one of the more lucky families. Despite the loss of their potatoes, they still had a bounteous wheat crop. But not to eat or sell for themselves, no. They sowed wheat in order to pay their rent, which they owed to their English landlord. Many poor farmers, like the O'Donovan Rossas, used wheat or barley crops for their rent instead of actual money. In fact, Ireland's most ripe land was reserved for growing grain, leaving the less desirable lands for the potato crop. Grain was a more valuable export, while potatoes were less so. The poor sowed their potato seeds on thin, rocky soil or the rough mountainside, leaving the richer soil for the wheat and other grains. Once they reaped their wheat crops in the fall, the landlord would send his keepers to the farm. These were agents who managed the estate and ensured that the Irish tenants paid their rent. They did this either by collecting wheat crops or any item of value, monetary or otherwise. The O'Donovan Rossa family were luckier than most families in that they had healthier and slightly larger lands on which to pitch their crops. But in the fall of 1845, they were in for a cruel surprise. The landlord was worried that the poor family wouldn't have anything left to pay their rent in the coming months. So to make sure he got his dues, he ordered his keeper to take everything the O'Donovan Rossas had from their wheat crop down to their last shilling. One of the O'Donovan Rossa's sons later recalled, there were four of us children there. The potato crop was gone. The wheat crop was gone. That, no doubt, was a visitation of English landlordism, as great a curse to Ireland as if it was the archfiend himself. Because of their landlord's greed, his family was left with no means to purchase more food or even the seed to grow more for the next year. They were completely destitute. Families all over Ireland were experiencing this same sort of suffering at the hands of both nature and their fellow man. But these cases only marked the beginning 
of all the potato famine had in store. Up next, Britain turns its back on Ireland as the famine claims its first victims. And now, back to the story. By the fall of 1845, the potato blight had reached Ireland, permeating the October crops and storehouses of poor Irish Catholic farmers. Meanwhile, their English landlords were growing more and more anxious. Instead of worrying about the lives of their Irish Catholic tenants, they were worried, first and foremost, that their tenants would not be able to pay rent. And while some families clung to the roof over their heads, another, even poorer demographic, was left to suffer the cold winter without food or shelter. The landless laborers comprised the bottom tier of Ireland's agrarian class. Many of them could only afford to live off another farmer's land, usually paying their rent by working the farmer's fields. This meant that they could only find work and shelter during the harvest months. But with no harvest to speak of, many of them were left without work or even a home. What's more, prices for other food items like oatmeal and flour skyrocketed, far beyond what Ireland's lower class could afford. Without work or affordable food, the landless laborers were left to forage Ireland's cold, mossy landscape. They looked for any bit of nourishment they could find, from discarded turnip tops to nettles and wild berries. All edible life was fair game. Some men went so far as to cut the tails off of bulls, roasting them over open fires before gnawing off every last ounce of meat. But in a country so small with so many people, foraging, and even stealing, quickly became unsustainable. And as winter drew close, the Irish reluctantly reached out to the ruling British government, sending reports detailing their dire situation and asking for help. One dejected man wrote, I am ashamed to tell you my wife, seven children, and myself only ate one meal of potatoes yesterday, and our last meal of potatoes is now in the house. The British called the reports exaggerated. At first, they didn't see a need to send anyone to examine the claims. They were sure that the Irish situation couldn't be as bad as the letters made it seem. It wasn't until the first famine-related death was reported that the British began to take the Irish situation more seriously. One of the first famine victims was Dennis McKennedy. After months of struggling to find food, he had died of sickness and starvation. Upon hearing of the death, British officials ordered McKennedy's corpse to be cut open so that they might examine the contents of his stomach. Inside, they found bits of undigested stalks, roots, and leaves. Starvation is a slow process, and left untreated nearly always leads to an agonizing death. Hunger paves the way for more severe malnutrition, which can then result in several diseases, including anemia, scurvy, and pellagra. Each of these diseases involves some shortage of essential vitamins and minerals. Anemia is a shortage of iron, scurvy is a deficiency of vitamin C, and pellagra is a lack of protein and vitamin B. This malnutrition was evidenced via physical symptoms including bruises, sore joints, bleeding gums, diarrhea, skin sores, and even mental illness. 
starving people's stomachs bloated as fluid built up in the abdomen, a sort of sad irony as the hungrier one became, the fuller they appeared. As the blight continued to spread, British Prime Minister Sir Robert Peel sent a scientific commission to diagnose the disease's source. There were too many reports coming in for them to ignore the Irish any longer. And so, in the late fall of 1845, the scientists arrived in Ireland and carried out a variety of tests on the potato crop. These led them to conclude that the disease was due to a wet rot caused by a bacteria commonly found in soil. They downplayed the disease, insisting that the potato crops could be salvaged and that the famine could be remedied. The scientists even went so far as to write complex instructions for how to salvage diseased potatoes, and this information was circulated around Ireland. Very few of the Irish spoke English, and even fewer knew how to read, and so the instructions were read out by more educated townspeople, like landlords and parish priests. The laborers followed the instructions to a T, from drying the potatoes in the sun to poking rods into storage pits for ventilation. Others soaked the potatoes in bog water, believing that the bog's regenerative properties might heal the crop of its disease. One of the most ill-formed attempts was when farmers would expose the infected potatoes to poisonous gas. They hoped that the gas would exercise the blackish matter from the potatoes, in effect curing them. It didn't. Anticipating that the disease could not be reversed, the scientists went on to claim that parts of the rotten potatoes could still be eaten if one only boiled and salted them properly. It didn't work. No matter how people would eat the potatoes, they would become sick. Almost instantly after eating an infected potato, one would suffer from bloody stools and stomach cramps and many of the elderly and very young were not able to recover from their illness. Once they had eaten the bad potatoes, it was only a matter of time before they died. Seeing how unsuccessful these efforts were, British Prime Minister Robert Peel felt that swift action had to be taken. First on the docket was repealing the Corn Laws, which had been around for 30 years. The laws were created to protect British businesses from a fluctuating market by placing significantly high import taxes and restrictions on foreign food and grains. This greatly reduced competition for British farmers and merchants, and for the most part, it extinguished free trade between the United Kingdom and all other countries, allowing internal trade to thrive. But in 1845, these laws exacerbated the famine in Ireland. As Ireland dutifully sent what crops they did have to England, England was spared the harsher effects of the famine's shortage. Meanwhile, the Irish couldn't even afford what food was left over, let alone pay the high taxes on imported food. Thus, Prime Minister Peel believed that the Corn Laws ought to be repealed for the sake of famine relief. If cheap food imports like American corn were brought into Ireland, the people might be able to scrape through winter. Peel knew that it would be difficult to get the rest of the British government and people on board. Many British people believed that the Corn Laws were the reason their economy was so prosperous. And English local farmers and businessmen would be reticent to give up their monopoly on British trade. 
Still, it was a fight Peel felt he had to undertake for the sake of those starving in Ireland. But it would take time, and he knew this was a luxury that the Irish people didn't have. Thus, in the fall of 1845, Peel went behind the British Treasury's back and ordered a massive import of American corn to be sent to Ireland. It was an action that would ultimately put his political career on the line. This act of chivalry, however, would turn out to be Peel's greatest blunder. In the end, the corn import did more harm than good. Even after the Irish people ground the kernels into cornmeal, it was too harsh for their weak and empty stomachs. According to researcher Susan Campbell Bartoletti, people suffered from terrible stomach pains, and some bled to death when the hard kernels punctured their intestines. Peel's relief efforts had completely backfired. Early relief efforts to Ireland also masked the greater import-export problem at the center of the worsening crisis. The fact of the matter was, besides potatoes, Ireland still produced more than enough food to go around, for themselves and for England. But the English landowners were continuing to extract whatever crops were left over, and English tradesmen were continuing to export these crops. Instead of pulling together to get through the famine, the rest of the United Kingdom was operating at its usual pace, draining Ireland of whatever they had. Overall, too much food was leaving Ireland, while not enough was coming in. Exports during the famine included everything from wheat to peas, beans, onions, rabbits, salmon, oysters, herring, lard, honey, and even the few potatoes that weren't contaminated. Irish people themselves could not afford these items, especially because the prices had inflated due to the famine. This made it nearly impossible for the poor agrarian class to purchase the food that was available within Ireland, and they had little political power to change their situation. Throughout the first stages of the famine, Parliament believed that the English landlords would manage the situation on a case-by-case basis. Surely these people would take care of their own tenants, and eventually the famine would end on its own. But this was not the case. As ever, English landlords were in the business of making money off the Irish, and they weren't willing to lose any of their usual cash flow, even in their tenants' greatest hour of need. Many landlords chose to evict their poor Irish tenants, taking everything these families had before kicking them to the street. Throughout the famine, thousands were forced into homelessness by the people who the British government trusted to care for them. This problem was exacerbated by the prejudice that many British people held towards the Irish. Due to the country's cyclical poverty and ever-increasing population, the British believed their neighbors were careless and lazy, not industrious and smart like the English. Some even went so far in their bigotry as to blame the famine on this so-called Irish laziness. They hoped that the widespread hunger would teach Ireland a lesson. What limited English sympathy there initially was for the Irish stemmed from hundreds of distressing accounts coming out of the country. John Mitchell, an Irish nationalist activist, described his travels across the dark countryside in morose detail. 
In the winter of 1845, he made his way through what was once fertile land, seeing only wretched and torn-up earth. Mitchell said of his travels, Sometimes I could see in front of the cottages little children leaning against a fence, for they could not stand, their limbs fleshless, their bodies half-naked, their faces bloated yet wrinkled, and a pale of greenish hue, children who would never grow up to be men or women. Seeing that the landlords were failing to help their Irish tenants, Peel's British government founded the Central Relief Commission in November of 1845. The group would oversee all aid being administered across Ireland, and as the famine progressed, it helped organize jobs and soup kitchens for the poor and starving. But these efforts ultimately weren't enough. Their services were outnumbered tenfold by how many Irish people were in need of them. Things turned even bleaker in the winter of 1845. Although mass death hadn't yet gripped the land, starvation was continuing its toll. People were hungry and sick, clinging to the hope that the long winter would either kill the blight or provide enough time to die out. They looked forward to spring and the planting of healthy new potatoes, but the farmers were in for a sore disappointment. The blight had not gone away. It had only spread. Now, even the few farms that hadn't been hit by the disease in the fall were now starting to see the early signs of infection. Black sludge oozed from freshly sowed spuds, and a familiar yet unwelcome stench filled the air. By the spring of 1846, the death toll was beginning to rise at a steady increase. It was this sad reality that finally prompted the British government to move forward on repealing the Corn Laws. And in June 1846, Prime Minister Peel announced a three-year phase-out of the UK's restrictive trade laws in the hopes of easing the famine in Ireland. On the surface, the repeal seemed to allow for more freedom of trade, which hypothetically meant more food could be imported into Ireland for hunger relief. But it showed just how little the British government understood the crisis. The famine wasn't a question of scarcity, but of who could afford whatever food there was besides potatoes. Importing food wasn't going to help the fact that prices were inflated, and many of the famine's victims couldn't afford their own Irish wheat, let alone cheap American corn. With the repeal of the Corn Laws, Peel knew he was reaching the end of his career as Prime Minister. And when the head of the British Treasury found out about the secret corn shipments to Ireland, he angrily confronted Peel. Given Peel's Irish sympathies and covert trade dealings, Britain's government believed he had failed to put English interests before all else. And by summer of 1846, he had been officially forced out of office. With Peel gone, the Irish had lost their most important British ally. His exit meant that the Irish would have to rely solely on local activists and a sympathetic British minority to be their advocates. They were virtually alone. And with each new day, survival looked less and less likely. Thanks for listening to Natural Disasters. 
For more information on the Irish potato famine, amongst the many sources we used, we found Black Potatoes, The Story of the Great Irish Famine, 1845 to 1850, by Susan Campbell Bartoletti, extremely helpful to our research. Next week, we'll follow the Irish as they attempt to survive a seemingly never-ending famine. You can find all episodes of Natural Disasters and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all your favorite ParCast originals, like Natural Disasters, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Natural Disasters on Spotify, just open the app and type Natural Disasters in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast. Cast Network. We'll see you next time. Natural Disasters was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. It's executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Isabella Way, and Paul Mahler. This episode of Natural Disasters was written by Justine Bede, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Tim Johnson and Kate Leonard. Mm-hmm.